This is Luke's Gospel, chapter 19, verses 1 through 10. Jesus entered Jericho and was passing through. Behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was seeking to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not, because he was small in stature. So he ran on ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was about to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried and came down and received him joyfully. And when they saw it, they all grumbled. He's gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor. And if I defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, since he also is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Well, imagine you are invited to the home of an Afghan warlord, an evil man known for his brutality, his, uh, his riches from what he's taken from other people, and he invites you into his house because he wants you to share him with him about Jesus. Would you go? Now, this isn't a hypothetical question. Our Leewood campus's primary global partner is Elam Ministries. They serve Iran. Um, and, and this was a real thing. Uh, a, an Afghan warlord invited an evangelist to come into his home. But the, there was a real debate in the ministry. Was, was this a real invitation? Or was the, the evangelist being invited into the home to be, to be killed? So there's real debra- debate. Should, should we send this person into the compound of an Afghan warlord? Would you go? I mean, listen, I think it's easy for all of us to sit in this room and be like, oh, yeah, man, I believe in Jesus. I would go. And it's like, listen, I, later this afternoon, I'm going to take a nap and watch a Chiefs game. So I don't know that I'm the guy that's like, yeah, I'd go anywhere, right? It's like... That, that's a really unique question to ask. Would I go into the home of someone who has done immense evil to share Jesus? Would I go into that person's home? Jesus answers that question in this story because Jesus is not like us. And so uh, this morning we're going to look at, at who Jesus is in this narrative. And the first thing we learn about Jesus in this narrative is Jesus goes where he should not go. Now, we all, uh, if you grew up in church, you probably are familiar with Zacchaeus, and you probably remember one fact about Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was, was he. Now, when you think about it, that's actually a really terrible thing to say about a person. Oh, it's Zacchaeus, the wee little man, right? And I can imagine by now a bunch of uh, American Christians have made their way to heaven. They found Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus sees them. They get this look in their eyes. They're like, listen, I know the song. There's more to me than the fact that I'm just a wee little man. Maybe he's even taller in heaven because of the damage we've done to him through that song. But listen, Zacchaeus was well known in his own city in Jericho. He was rich. He was important. He was a chief tax collector. And as a tax collector, that would mean two things was true about him, or at least everyone would have viewed him in these two ways. First is he was the means by which you paid your taxes. And listen, listen, we all love to pay our taxes today, but it was not always so. 
In fact, in this day, it was, it was even worse because one person would collect your taxes, but what they would do is they would overcharge you on your taxes so that they could have more of your money and live in luxury. And so Zacchaeus, that's what he did. That was the way he made a living, was he took your tax money, he took way more of it than what was necessary so that he could live in luxury. So that, listen, no one's going to like that person. But the other uh, thing that's important is he would have been seen as a collaborator of Rome. Rome was a foreign oppressor. And for Zacchaeus, a Jewish man, to collaborate with Rome through taxes to get wealthy would have meant most people would have viewed him as, as a traitor, a traitor to his own people. So he's an abuser of the poor. He's a traitor. This is not a good man. And so uh, uh, Kenneth Bailey in his work, Jesus Through Middle Eastern Eyes, uh, does a wonderful job imagining how the crowd would have imagined Jesus responding to Zacchaeus when Zacchaeus is trying to find Jesus. That's why they shut him out. They shut him out because they think, no way Jesus is going to want to have anything to do with this man. And he sort of writes, imagining what the crowd would imagine Jesus saying to Zacchaeus. It's this, Zacchaeus, you are a collaborator. You're an oppressor of these good people. You have drained the economic lifeblood of your people and given it to the imperialists. You betrayed your country and your God. This community hatred of you is fully justified. You must quit, repent, journey to Jerusalem for ceremonial purification, return to Jericho and apply yourself to keeping the law. If you are willing to do these things, on my next trip to Jericho, I will enter your newly purified house and offer my congratulations. And here's the thing. Like, the people were fully justified in feeling these things towards Zacchaeus. He was all of these things. But Jesus knew there was more to Zacchaeus than, than the surface level. So Jesus is unlike us. We see people, the surface, and we're ready to make vast conclusions about them, their lives, and who they are. Jesus doesn't do that with people. He enters into Zacchaeus' home instead. Uh, in his book, Seven Habits of Highly Effective People, Stephen Covey tells the story of being on a, a train in New York City and enjoying some quiet, some solace, when onto the train is, uh, comes a man with his children. And the children are just acting in an incredibly disturbing way. They're loud. They're being disruptive. And the guy is just sitting on the, the train, just totally checked out. And so Covey finally works up the courage to say, hey, sir, your children are disturbing people. Could you maybe get a hold of them a little bit? And this is what Covey writes about um, what happens next. The man lifted his gaze as if to come to a consciousness of the situation for the first time and said softly, oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died about an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Cubby writes, obviously he was horrified by his reaction. He offered the man help, but the, the point that he makes in, that, uh, in his book, as well as I... The point I want to make about Zacchaeus is when you see the surface, it's easy to draw significant conclusions about what you see. But underneath, you have no idea what's below the waterline. Zacchaeus, despite his evil, which is uncontested, was one meal from conversion. Was one afternoon of hospitality to paying people back, to turning his life around to seeking a new future. But the crowds didn't care, so they shut him out, kept him away. And Jesus, instead, doesn't just uh, 
speak to Zacchaeus, but insists on going into Zacchaeus' home, which is a level of relationship and intimacy and community. That's saying, Zacchaeus, I want to I know you. I want you to know me. And Jesus goes where he shouldn't go because he sees what we often do not see. What's beneath the water line. And it's not just that Jesus goes where he doesn't, uh, shouldn't go. He, also, he actually eats with people that he should not eat with, which is, again, a level of community and family that goes beyond just Jesus' willingness to engage Zacchaeus. Now, one thing that's important for us to, to remember that, that is true even today is that, listen, to climb a tree as a grown adult is not like a respectable thing to, to do. So imagine, I mean, really what's happening in the scene is, is imagine you're in New York City and the former uh, New York mayor, Michael Bloomberg, very wealthy man, um, it, you just see him running down the street in a $3,000 suit, and then he climbs a tree in Central Park. My guess is you're not going to assume that he's having a, well, uh, a well-reasoned day within his mind. And Zacchaeus, to do this, shows an incredible level of humility and a, also like an, a, a willingness to enter into own, his own embarrassment. Right? If you came to my house later today and you saw me in my tree, my guess is you just drive right past. Right? It's like, oh, whatever's going on there, I don't want to know. I'm, just, I'm moving on. Right? And that's, that is the level of embarrassment Zacchaeus is willing to embrace in order to get to Jesus. And of course, Jesus doesn't just say, right, listen, Zacchaeus, what incredible faith. He says, no, Jesus, I insist. I'm coming into your house today. I'm coming to eat with you. And there's two reasons, I think, uh, for this. One is that Jesus, it's the whole point of the story, which we're told in verse 10. Jesus makes clear, I came to seek and save the lost. That's why he is going into the home of Zacchaeus. Jesus came to seek and save the lost. It's a part of his entire mission. Uh, and so one of my, one of my former uh, professors, Dr. Uh, Joshua Jipp, he wrote a book called Saved by Faith and Hospitality. It's one of my favorite books I've ever read. I, I highly recommend it to you. And in the book, he writes this. The entire ministry of Jesus is appropriately captured in the phrase, divine hospitality to the stranger and sinner. God's hospitality is extended to his lost broken, needy, and often stigmatized people. The divine hospitality comes to us in the person of Jesus, the divine host, who extends God's hospitality to sinners, outcasts, and strangers, and thereby draws them and us into friendship with God. God's embrace of humanity into friendship with him is the ultimate form of welcoming the stranger. The gif's point is basically this, that the the entire ministry of Jesus was basically to eat with people because we as, his, we as human beings had left fellowship with God to chase sin. And so Jesus comes and says, listen, I'm here as representative of the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit, to bring you back to the table. So if you read through the Gospel of Luke, Jesus is just eating with people. So that's, like, that's his ministry, is to eat with people as a sign of God's divine hospitality welcoming them back into his family. His entire mission is to come to seek and save the lost. Secondly, the reason Jesus goes into to Zacchaeus' home is because Jesus is not morally self-righteous. Even though he is the Son of God, who is morally perfect, he does not see his status as a means by which he can shut people out. Uh, in his book, Tribe, Sebastian Younger, he writes this about our own culture. We're very different from what Jesus embodies. He says this, People speak with incredible contempt about, depending on their views, the rich or the poor. 
the educated, the foreign-born, the president, or the entire U.S. government. It's a level of contempt that is usually reserved for enemies in wartime, except now it's applied to our fellow citizens. Unlike criticism, contempt is particularly toxic because it assumes a moral, a moral superiority of the speaker. The, what Younger gets at that's very much in play through most of the Gospels is that people's moral self-righteousness is what, is what causes them to label people like Zacchaeus, tax collectors, sinners, and why you read of the crowd, when they saw it, they all grumbled. How could you eat with that man? You can only say that is if you're convinced that morally speaking, you are in a place where you are deserving of fellowship with God, and there are people who are not. And I think, listen, our entire culture runs on contempt. That's what feeds our social media feeds. It's what feeds our cable news industry in an increasingly splintered media where we continue to find people not just to agree with us, but will embrace the contempt we have for people who disagree with us. And the stronger contempt that is spoken, the more likely we're to be drawn to those voices. And I've seen it now in the life of the church, where it's not just we, we say to one another, listen, I love you, I disagree with you, I see things differently, and this is a non-biblical issue, so we could disagree, it's okay. It's no, 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 you disagree with me on this, therefore you're a morally inferior person to me. You are fill-in-the-blank name. And it's not just disagreement with love and respect, it's content, there's contempt, there's moral superiority. And if Jesus, the Son of God, had no moral superiority towards Zacchaeus. What right do you and I have to, to look at anybody and think, you know, this is me and this is them? I think it's really important for us, especially in our own culture, to, to begin to weed out the contempt that drives so much of our cultural moments. And so uh, I think that means two things for us as a church as we embrace the mission of Jesus, to embody who Jesus is in this passage as his body here on earth, as representatives of his mission here on earth. It means two things for us. First, we need to train ourselves in enemy love. Uh, I mentioned last week at Vision Night, I've been doing a lot of reading on the early church, just trying to understand how did they embody their own cultural moment? How did they go from a small persecuted minority to the two billion you know, Christian worldwide movement we have today, especially when everyone hated them in the first century? Uh, and one of the things the early church did was, if you were to become a Christian in the first couple of centuries, before you were allowed to go to church, you had to undergo three years of catechism, three years of teaching. Now, so I'm, not, I'm not necessarily embracing that, that line of thinking, but here's what, the reason they did that was they, listen, they just knew if you became a Christian, you were going to undergo enormous suffering and rejection and shame heaped upon you. You might lose your job. Uh, you're going you're gonna to lose the morally respectable you know, position you had in society. And they, listen, you just couldn't walk into the church and be like, yeah, guys, I'm in for that. Let's do it, right? So you, needed, you needed training first. And so the, the training basically was, was built with the idea, one, you could, you'd be able to withstand all of the suffering you were going to, that you were actually like serious enough to withstand the suffering that was coming your way. And secondly, what's very clear is the church wanted to train you in order to how to love your enemies because you were about to have a lot of enemies, and so we don't know a lot about, like, what, was the, what were those three years like? Uh, we don't know a ton about that. But one thing that's clear we do know is one of the central texts to the early church, 
early church's catechism was a text I'm going to bet most of us are not familiar with. It's Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. Uh, Origen, an early African church father, said, every Christian knows, these, knows this verse, and then he quoted it. And here is Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4, what was clearly a central part of the early church's catechism, what every Christian memorized, because it was this important. Isaiah 2, verses 2 through 4. It shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. It shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many peoples will come and say, Come, let us go to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations. They shall decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares, their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So why this text was at the center of the early church's catechism is it's a text on enemy love. And at the center of Isaiah 2 is weapons of war... Swords and spears become, wep- become t- tools of farming, uh, pruning hooks and plowshares. Because we don't need weapons for war anymore as Christians. We're not at war anymore. Even though the early church was, was dying for their faith, was suffering enormously at the hands of their enemies, the early church's message to the broader world was, we're not at war with you anymore. So one of the earliest Christian documents, um, a letter from a man named Aristides, writes this. The early Christians, they comfort such as wrong them and make friends of them. They labor to do good to their enemies. So the church had this confidence. Man, I, I, don't have to, I don't have to shame you into the truth. I don't have to argue in, you into the truth. I don't have to guilt you into the truth. I, I am confident in the way, I'm so confident in the way of God in the power of the Spirit, I'm going to love you, however you treat me. I'm not going to speak in harsh tones. I'm not, I'm not at war with you. My, my spear is now a plowshare. My, uh, my, <clears throat> my sword is now a pruning hill. I don't need to, I'm not fighting with you anymore. And what, what's clear about the early church is that over time won the Roman culture to the way of Jesus. Because the way of Jesus, in a, world, in a world of contempt and wars and enemies, the church is like, we're opting out of all that. And so they train themselves in enemy love. And I would just ask, do you need that training? Who do you view with contempt? Not just disagreement, but it moves into name-calling. It moves into to disgust. It moves into condescension. You can't imagine having a table shared with that person. And honor them as the person that they are. So first, listen, the church, we need to train ourselves in enemy love. But secondly, what I think Luke 19 means for our mission is we need to plan to eat our way into the kingdom of God. I think we can all get behind this one. Um, Alan Hirsch, pastor and author, he writes this. If every Christian family in the world simply offered good conversational hospitality around a table once a week to neighbors... We would eat our way into the kingdom of 
God. And, and what he means by that is, you know, the church often, like, we really argue around, what's a good evangelistic strategy? Do we do alpha courses? Do we do altar calls? Do we do... And listen, if we want to do, like, the biblical strategy for conversion, it is actually, it is table fellowship hospitality. Read Acts, read Jesus' ministry through the, Luke, uh, through the Gospel of Luke, and all he's doing is eating with people he shouldn't eat with. Is being with people he shouldn't be with. It's the whole deal. And I think the reason why we often don't have table fellowship with people uh, that, that are out of the way of Jesus is we're too, listen, we're too busy being morally superior. No one would want to eat with us in the first place. And if they do come to our table, we have to give them a lecture about all the things they're getting wrong before we can actually enter into their lives. And what table fellowship does is say, come and let's eat and I want to hear your story. And I want to know you and I want to listen and I want to ask questions and I want to understand. I mean, you don't see, even here, you don't see Jesus giving a lecture to Zacchaeus about his way of life. Maybe he did, but that's not the point of Luke's story. The point of Luke's story is that the table fellowship was so powerful, Zacchaeus' life is changed. And listen, in a world of contempt, where the idea that salvation would be free through the grace and mercy of God, the only way that's going to become believable is if Christians have an open and welcoming table. If we are just one more group in the culture yelling condemnation at everyone else for all the things they get wrong and all the ways they live that aren't right, if that's our entire posture towards the world, we're just going to be one more group of people saying, you're not good enough, right? You're, we, our table is shut off to you. And one of the ways to convince the world that the mercy, of grace and, the mercy and grace of God is a real thing is an open table to eat with people we shouldn't eat with. Because most of us, even in this room, right, what we believe is until, I'm, until I actually live a good moral life, God will not, he does not want to be with me. Or we, we think I am not living a good moral life and there's no way God would ever want to spend time with me. And the church should be the one place where we undo all of that. And yet, as I mentioned a couple weeks ago, oftentimes people who struggle with addiction, who struggle with great sin, they find the church the last place they want to go because they expect judgment. And I just wonder, is that, is, do they see the way we treat one another, right, inside the church? They're like, well, man, i got enough judgment outside the church. I don't need to walk inside the church. When all along we have a message and a mission from Jesus, which is open table fellowship towards the sinner. His whole mission is divine hospitality towards the stranger so let's eat our way into the kingdom of God. Let's eat with people we shouldn't eat with. Um, but then third and finally, Jesus, ultimately, he gives in ways that he should not. So he goes where he shouldn't go. He eats with those he shouldn't eat with. And he gives in ways uh, that he shouldn't give. And one of the, I think, really interesting things about the end of the story is Zacchaeus has an entirely new orientation to his vocation. So he's a tax collector, um, and he decides to, to now give away 50% of his income and to restore fourfold to those he had treated with injustice. Um, and that, that's, that's important because uh, as we think about our own uh, vocations, our own Monday life, life with Jesus means giving and living in ways that we probably shouldn't give or live. And so the Theology of Work Commentary is a great little explanation of what's happening to Zacchaeus in the story uh, the encounter with Jesus profoundly changes the way Zacchaeus works. Like all tax collectors in Roman client states, Zacchaeus made his money from overcharging people on their taxes. Although this is what we might now call industry standard practice, it depended on deceit, intimidation, and corruption. 
Once Zacchaeus comes in to the kingdom of God, he can no longer work this way. Exactly how or whether we will conti- he will continue to make a living, he doesn't say, for it's beside the point. As a citizen of God's kingdom, he cannot engage in business practices contrary to God's ways. And what I like about that, that, that phrase, industry standard practices, all of us on Monday, we go into a world with industry standard practices. Whether you're a student in middle school, uh, whether you're going into a workplace, an office, whether you're homeschooling your kids, like there's just industry standard ways of doing things. And when you encounter life with Jesus, you begin to, to challenge those industry standard assumptions. So I just ask you, on, on Monday, there's assumptions about how to do your Monday life. How does Jesus challenge those assumptions? How would he change your industry standard practices? The way you lead, the way you serve those you work with, the way you talk to those you work with. Zacchaeus has a totally new orientation to his vocation. But then secondly, Zacchaeus has a totally new orientation towards the poor. His encounter with Jesus leads him to give away 50% of everything he's made. And then on top of that, to, to go about restoring his vocational brokenness four times to those he gave um, or he treated unjustly. And here's the thing. Like, this is, there's, there's not a legalistic standard. Last week, we did the rich young ruler. Jesus said, you have to give 100% away to the poor. Then come follow me. Zacchaeus gives 50%. So again, the good news is there's not a legalistic standard here, right? It's not every Christian must give X uh, away to the poor. But what is true is that every Christian now has a new orientation to the poor. And the way I go about my own economic life cannot be lived without a special concern for the poor. That comes to what kind of clothing do I wear? Where do I shop and buy my food from? How are the poor in my city flourishing, not flourishing? How am I contributing to that? How can I serve that? And listen, that, that's going to be probably different things for all of us in ways to answer those questions. And yet, if you're in the way of Jesus, remember Luke 4, the beginning sermon of Jesus, the first words he speaks is, I have good news for the poor. We have a new orientation to the poor as his people that we begin to live out. For Zacchaeus, that meant I'm giving half away today. Um, and I'm going to restore fourfold to those I've treated unjustly. What does that mean for us? As we think about our own economic life towards the poor, what would that mean? But here's the, the question I really want, to, want us to think about is, Zacchaeus encounters Jesus, and that means he changes the way he does his work. He changes his disposition to the poor. He takes Jesus' life very seriously. And the, the result is, uh, is an entire city is going to be captivated by the mission of Jesus. What would it look like for us to take seriously the teachings of Jesus? What kind of shockwaves would that send through, through our own city? And yet, I want to be really clear The point of this sermon is not, you know, be like Zacchaeus who gave a lot of his money away to the poor. The point of this this sermon is very, like this text is very clear in chapter, uh, in verse 10, the way way it uh, is summarized. The whole point of this chapter is that Jesus, the son of man, came to seek and save the lost. That Jesus came to seek and save you. So to finish the, uh, the warlord story, uh, the evangelist went to the home of this Afghan warlord into his compound, totally unsure what this meeting was going to be about. He shared the gospel, preached Jesus, and this warlord was converted. Um, but not just converted in a way that says, oh great, I get to go to heaven uh, one day when I die. No, no, no. He recognized that as, as a warlord, he had done great injustice. 
So he sent messengers throughout the regions to the city of Kabul, seeking out the people he had stolen land from and restored all of it. And this, this sent shockwaves through all of Afghanistan, all of Kabul, at what had happened to this. Like, what would cause a warlord to start giving land back? And the answer throughout that region rang out, Jesus. And I just, like, are similar shockwaves sent through Kansas City about the way Christians embrace our lives and the teachings of Jesus. I mean, our lives are so radically different because we have, we've, been, we've been the recipients of divine hospitality. And I think the reason why, probably for some of us, the answer is no to that isn't, isn't because we're not moral enough. We've got to start living better than, you know. No, 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 no. It's because we, we've not been willing to do what Zacchaeus did, which is, is to climb the tree. Again, like just imagine going home today and climbing a tree. How weird your neighbors would think you are, how strange you would look to anyone who would pass by. It would be an act of self-humiliation. Yeah, Zacchaeus, the reason he climbs a tree is not just to do a weird thing. He has to get to Jesus. And to get to Jesus requires humbling himself. And how many of us, when we see Jesus, we don't see Jesus just as, hey, I'm a good person, he'll get me into heaven, but instead see Jesus as the divine hospitality coming to seek lost sinners. Jesus came to seek and save the lost, which means if Jesus resonates with you, you're identifying yourself as a lost person. Or you're not identifying with Jesus. And so this morning, if you are not a Christian, if you've never taken up the way of Jesus, that's the, fir- the first step is to climb the tree, is to humble yourself, to see yourself as lost, a sinner, as broken, and to climb the tree knowing Jesus is here to extend hospitality to you. Have you done that? And if you are a Christian, it might require you going back. Maybe we've climbed down from the tree. We're now in the crowd. We're shutting other people out because we've finally attained the status worthy of Jesus. We're the good people now. We know who the bad people are. We're going to make sure we keep them out. We need to go back to where it all started, which is that we were lost sinners. Jesus came and showed divine hospitality to, and that is really good news, because the longer you live, the more you begin to wonder, okay, I failed again. Will he welcome me back to his table? I've, you know, I've done it again. Will he welcome me back to his table? And the church community, our one job is to say, yes, the table is open, and not because you're a good person, and not because Jesus even overlooks your sin, or he's forgotten about it, because he himself climbed the tree. He went onto a cross so that his divine hospitality could be extended to us regardless of the week you've had, regardless of the moral life that you are living. You, he came to seek and save the lost. And as a Christian a couple hundred years ago wrote, John Owen, there is not the meanest, the weakest, the poorest believer on the earth, but Christ prizes him more than all the world. And do you believe that about yourself this morning? That Jesus prizes you if you are in him. He proved it to you when he went on a cross. He proved it to you when his body was broken, his blood was shed for you. He prizes you. He welcomes you to his table. And he looks at all of us up in the tree as lost sinners just pleading for help. And he says, today I must come to your house and stay. That is his word to you this morning, to us this morning. May we hear it.
Let's pray. Father, the idea that the Son of God would would leave the riches of heaven, come to earth, and then pick out a man of injustice and sin and insist on, on being in his house, God, is the greatest news that will be spoken anywhere um, on this earth this morning because it is good news for each one of us that regardless of where we've come from or what's on our hearts or minds or what we've struggled with this week, Jesus looks at us in our own trees and says, I want to come in. I want to spend time with you. I want to know you. I love you. But we can say that as much as we want. Your spirit has to make that real to us. And so spirit, make it real to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.